Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Travis Howerton, co-founder and CTO of RegScale, a continuous compliance automation platform that raised over $21 million in funding. Travis, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Not a problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure thing. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm Travis Howerton, uh, one of the co-founders at RegScale. But by way of background and training, I spent 20 plus years in the U.S. nuclear weapons program where I became their first chief technology officer uh, responsible for safety, security, and reliability of the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile. Where I got to see firsthand some of the challenges with compliance, where we were very risk adverse, and you want us to be with weapons that could end the world. And then I got into the private sector once I ended my federal career and found that the other areas I was working in were equal, maybe not equally, but also very risk adverse and hindered by compliance. And we could never find a good uh, product to solve the problem. And it was a major pain point everywhere I'd been. And so we decided to uh, start our own business and try to, to build our own. And that's how we got to here. Wow. So some follow-up questions then. What was that like making that transition from you know, working in the government to the private sector? Yeah, it was interesting. So I went to Oak Ridge National Lab first, which I would describe as an excellent hybrid. So it's funded by the government, but it's run by the University of Tennessee and Patel Corporation. So it, it runs like a private sector business. And so it was a great bridge for me because there were a lot of familiar things in terms of how you get your funding from the government and regulations and other things. But it was very bottom line, private sector driven as well. And so that was a good bridge for me. So I didn't get dropped immediately into the deep end. I got some great mentorship by a guy named Jeff Smith and... uh Mike Bartell out at the lab who kind of broke me in a little bit as I eased into the private sector and then later obviously made a full transition. And yeah, this is just my own personal curiosity, but when it comes to nuclear, what's like the number one misconception that you hear out there that people seem to have? Um, that it's dangerous. And it obviously is, you know, if you just look at the pure physics of it, but a lot of the danger of it been engineered out. If you look at uh, where we are today, reactors that are inherently secure, our uh, nuclear stockpile was inherently safe, well protected. Now, there's different issues with other materials around the world, but uh, the fear factor from the movies and other things is overplayed versus the benefits against global warming and and uh, uh, world safety and other things that nuclear offers. So. Uh, I think it always gives it sort of a bad light, understandably, from how it's portrayed. But if you look at the actual technology and science behind it, there's there's a, uh, an understated amount of benefits. A few other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? I really like uh, Ray Dalio. Started the largest hedge fund, became the largest hedge fund in the world, and just the way he thinks. So his business principles book and how you think through making decisions and radical transparency and just unthinking a lot of how businesses 
operate today in large bureaucracies, which is where I came from. And I think he did a good job of summarizing a lot of things I've always hated, but didn't know why and getting to sort of the cause of why they don't work and what does. I learned a, a ton from following him and I pretty religiously followed him. I think uh, he's brilliant and his ability to, to understand deeply problems in different domains and study them and systematically be able to do that is pretty amazing. So that's the one I think I would pick. Yeah, I'm a big Ray Dalio fan as well. And one thing that I just find really fascinating about him is I, I think it's very uncommon to have someone who's you know, reach that level of wealth and that level of success, who's now, you know, just giving back all of their knowledge, everything that they've learned. And he doesn't seem to have like a new product to sell or, you know, there's no like catch. I think he's really just said, okay, I'm the tail end of my life. I'm going to dedicate myself to spreading what I've learned to the world. And, and I just think that's really cool to see. And it comes across very authentic, you know, when you're reading his books or consuming his content, you don't feel like there's like a gotcha or like an offer or something like that, which, which I think is really cool. I agree. Sort of, I, I'm a software guy, but it's kind of like open sourcing everything that made you a billionaire. Right. And so I think it's really cool to see. And I've certainly benefited and learned a, a great deal from it. When it comes to books, and we got this from an author named Ryan Holiday, he calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. I know we touched on principles there, so we have to remove that from the list of options. Outside yep. of principles, what would you say is a, a quick book for you? I really like James Collins. So I go, if I had to pick one, I go good to great. That was one of those that when I first read it, it really just helped me understand how you differentiate things. And it's not what you think it is, where you're the smartest, you have the biggest, best idea. It's how you execute a lot of things well, consistently at scale and continue to do things that in the face of pressure, competitive pressures and market dynamics, I thought it was a master class. And I'm a bit of a data nerd. So the fact that he's got all these statistics and it's well-researched by these Stanford folks, I, I thought it was brilliant. And so I'd highly recommend that when anyone who's trying to grow and scale a business, I think that's one of the, the best books out there. Yeah, that's definitely one of the classics. I read that for the first time in 2015. And as we speak, I am rereading it again for the second time. And it's been right. fun to see like the the different areas that I highlighted when I first read it that you know, don't seem relevant today or just seem so obvious today. And like the parts I'm highlighting now that you know, do seem eye-opening and, and really interesting. So very, very fun read. And I do think it's one of those books that you can just go back to and read it over and over again throughout your career. You're always going to pick up something new. Absolutely. Let's switch gears and let's dive deeper into rig scale. So at a high level, what problem are you solving? Well, we just got into this compliance problem. So for me, when you're starting a business, like you have to figure out how to make somebody a lot more money or you have to make a lot of pain go away for a price they're willing to pay. And there was nothing I did in my career that I found more painful than compliance. Like if you want to go to a bar and shut a conversation down, just start talking about regulatory compliance. Everybody hates it. Huge documents. Nobody wants to write. Nobody wants to read. So it's a lot of write once, read, never stuff. And we just thought that was one of the last big problems left in IT that's holding back digital transformation. And we wanted to take our stab at, can we combine AI and automation and, and new ways of thinking to reimagine how that's done and, and just make this major pain point in businesses go away or at least minimize it as a function of 
And take me back then to a late 2021 when you founded the company. What were those early conversations like? And what was it about this problem of you know, the, all the problems that are out there that you probably could have tried to solve? Why this problem? Well, you're kind of looking for something that you're passionate about, that you're good at, and that you think you've got some competitive advantage. And so spending 20 plus years in the nuclear weapons program, I got inundated with all things compliance, deeply trained in a lot of different ways. Some of the extreme ends of complexity and scale we were dealing with in compliance there. So I felt like it was something we understood deeply. We also felt like the world was changing where everything's API driven. and There's all this rich telemetry that exists now that just the way that it's done is stupid and will become increasingly stupid as a function of five when everything gets real-time and ephemeral and AI-based in the, the coming decade. So we knew it was going to break. We thought we had a vision of a, a better place it should be and how to get there, and we were passionate about solving the problem. So it's one of those, we were at a point in our career, and Neil and I, where we didn't feel like we had a lot to prove in the world we came from as executives in that world, but this was sort of the big, nasty problem that, just bothered me I could never solve. And so we felt like on the private sector, we had a better chance to solve it. And that's kind of how we got into this. Talk to us about those first paying customers. How'd you manage to land those? That's obviously something that every founder struggles with in the early days. So I'd love to learn from your journey there. Yeah, some of them like creative marketing, going to conferences and deals a world-class snoozer. So sending a deal out to talk to people else. I think we had a really visionary idea. And so what we kind of found that both helped us and hurt us was finding other visionaries who were excited about the vision. Because when you're an early stage product, you don't do everything you want to do in the vision. You do some pieces of it, but you want to get somebody excited about being part of it. And so we found a, uh, a very large financial institution that was feeling this pain. And we felt like we could immediately solve their problem with the MVP we had. Same thing, we've had a very large defense contractor that also had similar but different vertical domain problems. And we were able to land two really big contracts early on, as well as some smaller ones. But those two sort of wells we landed, I think got the attention of the investor community because you don't tend to get contracts of that size at the maturity we were. And with organizations that have that much diligence in procurement and other things, which kind of led them to believe we might be onto something if people were that excited about the idea. And why do you think they gave you a shot? You know, early on, what did you do to build that trust and credibility with them? I think we sat in their chair. You know, we're not, unfortunately, I'm not a young guy anymore. And so I've lived a lot of the same problems that they're dealing with. And we thought we had a really creative way to solve it. We ran into a whole bunch of people who just couldn't mentally get there from here. You know, they couldn't get out of, I've always done this in Excel. I'll always do it in Excel. We'll just throw bodies at it sort of mentality. But we found like-minded people who were feeling the pain and felt like something should be done about this. They helped us get our start. And so forever grateful to those folks, but it did take finding some people with a shared vision and passion for the the problem in the early days to get us going when we're still figuring a lot of stuff out. 
When it comes to your market category, how do you think about the market category? Is it continuous compliance automation or what's the actual market category? Yeah, we're focused on continuous controls monitoring, which is kind of the thing Gartner's starting to write about as what's coming next beyond GRC, which I think is a crowded space. So there'll still be GRC totals. People will do the manual stuff, but for the subset of things that you can automate or use AI to make go away, we think there's a lot of uh, business case for just cost reduction in those areas. At the same time, there's a lot of audit risk in those areas from just not being able to check things because you don't have enough bodies, you can't get access to the data. We just think there's a whole bunch of right areas. So we've got a couple areas we're focused on in continuous compliance monitoring that we think uh, we've got highly differentiated capabilities that are new, unique, and different, but also complement some of the existing technology stack that, that large enterprises have today. What role do analysts play in your go-to-market today? Are you actively working with Gartner to try to you know, shape and, and influence this new category? Yeah, we do talk to analysts. We've been mentioned in four uh, Gartner hype cycles this year, which we're excited about. So we've gotten some recognition from analysts, both at the need for this space of so some market validation that large enterprises are, are feeling this pain and looking for solutions. So there's a market there. And then we've been uh, recognized those four times as a leader, thought leader in that space in this emerging market. So it's too soon for them to have a magic quadrant or anything like that. But uh, they're starting to write about it and they're starting to write about RegScale as one of the, the thought leaders and platforms that some of the more visionary companies are early adopting. So that's pretty exciting. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to the customer base or just revenue base, what's the split between government and private enterprise? Um, it varies a little bit. We have more private sector customers for sure. The government customers tend to be bigger. So by revenue, you know, they're a good chunk of our revenue, but by volume of transactions are smaller. So um, they're nice when you can get them, but we are, we're definitely not focused on the, the government vertical exclusively. The majority of our customers are still private sector. And that's where we see a lot of the scalable growth for the business is in the private sector. But we love our government sector customers too, and we have a fair number of those as well, especially in the national security community. What founders have told me on the podcast previously is you know, landing the government is like the ultimate boost of trust and credibility. And you can take that trust and credibility that you get from people saying, well, if it works for the government, it can probably work for my company. And then all of a sudden you're in that organization. Is that something that you've seen as well? thousand percent. It's one of those when you sell to the Department of Defense and they're using it there, it's kind of hard to say it's it's not good enough for your bank, right? And so we're pursuing our FedRAMP high. We've kind of started with this thesis that if you can handle the complexity and the security requirements of the government, you can move down market from that. What we've seen is it's really hard to start with light security in the private sector and then move up market and handle all those security requirements and try to backfit it into your stack. So we kind of started with the high watermark. Frankly, it's all we've ever known coming out of the nuclear weapons side where you kind of get the extreme end of the requirements. 
But uh, we started with sort of a design for the maximum level of complexity and security and then moved down market. And so far, we've, we've been doing a good job at that. Someone I had on about two weeks ago was talking a lot about CMMC compliance and how that's going to be coming through for any organization that touches the defense industrial base. Is CMMC something that you're going to eventually offer or is that something completely outside of what you're talking about here? Yeah, we offer it today. We offer 50 plus regulations. So FedRAMP is a big one for us. It's one of those that we sell a lot of software for people at FedRAMP issues because it's so painful and expensive to get it. CMMC is a lighter lift than that. A lot of our CMMC customers use our free community edition, which has been downloaded over 300,000 times now. And so for those smaller use cases, we just give the software away and try to help the community be more compliant. And then for these larger enterprises who have really complex, multi-regulatory frameworks they have to comply with, that's where our automation AI really saves money at scale and where we charge for some of the enterprise features. But we support CMMC today, PCI, HIPAA, NERC, SIP, FedRAMP, every variant and NIST you can think of. And so we've taken sort of a horizontal view where we can support any compliance requirement even ones that aren't cyber related that might be nuclear or safety or environmental as well. When it comes to growth, are there any numbers and metrics that you can share? Yeah, over the last year, we were really focused on tripling and we were able to, to beat our target there. So we had a great year over our last fiscal year. This year, we're looking to uh, double and position ourselves for uh, a future capital race. As we get to the, the end of this funding tranche uh, next year, and start thinking about our Series B. But uh, right now, we're focused on doubling again um, and getting some validation in some new markets. But we're continuing to grow and uh, excited to see what we can do in some of these new markets we're targeting. From a marketing perspective, what do you attribute to that growth? What are you doing to rise above all the noise that's out there and connect with customers in the way that you are? Yeah, some of it's organic growth through the network. You know, referrals from uh, customers who tell others what a, how we've been able to help them. Some of it's just being young and hungry. So great customer service and really uh, bidding over backwards to, to make our customers happy. And I think some of it's we're just really, really aggressive on the technology front. So extreme automation, some AI stuff that customers will describe as black magic and witchcraft. So we're just doing some stuff that's very forward leaning. I mean, the continuous controls monitoring space with automation and AI. So it's not automated like a lot of tools where you type it into a web form instead of a Word document. It's doing some pretty extreme DevOps, automation, AI-based things. So I think the forward-leaning nature of the stack, we just have the benefit of building on a modern tech stack versus starting 10 years ago where everything was harder and the, the tooling wasn't quite there. What role has content played in your marketing success? While I was going through the website earlier, I noticed the resource section is just full of content. You have Reg Steel University, you have a Reg Ops community. Can you talk to us a little bit about the content marketing thesis yeah. and philosophy and approach? Absolutely. So we kind of think of ourselves as leading a movement. When we talk about it as Reg Ops, or bringing the principles of DevOps to regulatory compliance and trying to develop a framework and set of principles that enterprises can use, whether it's with Reg Scale or not, to just rethink how they're approaching compliance in a way that's more cost-effective, lower risk, and more sustainable for the long-term. So we put a lot of content around that. Lots of white papers, customer use cases, webinars, 
The other thing about being a DevOps platform is almost all the DevOps tooling is open source with lots of online docs to help you get started. And we've really leaned into that. So all of our docs are open and public facing. We don't put everything behind a paywall or make you register and bombard you with marketing. So we've put a lot of content out there and made it easy to get. And because of that, that's part of how we got to the 300,000 downloads that people have found us. They've got a problem. They can get a free tool. They can get it up and running easily. And then a lot of those find they have more complicated needs or there's more they want to do with it. And then they decide that maybe they want to up convert or consider doing more with the paid version. So we have some direct B2B stuff with the enterprise that's working, but we've also got an up convert motion that we're seeing as well through our uh, free community edition. How do you think about measuring the impact of that content? That's one of the conversations that I have a lot with founders and, and with CMOs. And I'm a big fan of having everything open and yeah, making that bet that adding value in the long term always wins. But I come across a lot of CMOs who you know, join a company and they're hell bent on saying every single thing we do is going to be gated. We need to be able to measure exactly where that lead came from, blah, 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 you know, all of that kind of stuff. So what, what's your view there and, and how do you think about measuring the impact of these content efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So one is we're very fortunate. We have hired uh, SD Peskowitz, who's our uh, chief of marketing, and she's just fantastic. And she's a great partner to work with. And I know I probably drive her crazy at times because, you know, marketing always wants to capture what they can so that they can be more effective in their job. But at the same time, we're a customer first organization. So we don't want to create a lot of friction between our customers getting value and then having to go through a bunch of, of steps to get it with us. So we've sort of taken uh, partially it's content driven. So people find us, they hear us speak, they see what we're doing at conferences and other things, and they get excited about it. Other times it, it's organic where one of our existing customers is a fan and they tell others. And then a lot of it's just the free side we're giving out. And so they get to play with it. They can test it. They can evaluate it. There's zero friction in the process. They might even decide they don't need the paid version. That they're small and this more than meets their needs. And we're happy to, that we were able to help them. So uh, sort of multifaceted marketing plan. The beauty of Esty is no matter where anything goes, she's got data on it, cost per lead, all well planned out. So we've got a lot of capabilities I wouldn't expect in a company of our size and maturity on the marketing side that she's put together, but it's definitely multifaceted. When it comes to funding, as I mentioned there in the intro, over $21 million raised to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? A lot of our preconceived notions of how you raise money were just wrong. We did a first lap where I think Anil and I did a terrific job of embarrassing ourselves, not knowing what we we're doing. The upside is we did learn from that experience. We built a network of folks who coached us, counseled us. And we were also raising during the time where I think the whole VC world chased a lot, where they expect you to bootstrap a lot more in an age of cloud, where you can build prototypes fast and quick. They expect you to have more revenue and have done more customer discovery. They expect more market analysis. They expect a better team. They're less concerned about where the team is than they were before, where you had to be in one of these central hubs. COVID changed some of that pretty rapidly and some of these modern tools. So a lot of things were changing while we were trying to race. But uh, I think the thing we did well is when we were embarrassingly stupid, we listened, we learned, and we tried to be creatively stupid the next time. And then eventually we ran out of ways to be stupid and were able to close around. 
Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch based on everything that you've learned so far. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? I think the big thing for me is to slow down. There's always such a push to grow fast. And the thing, if anything, I've learned is that sort of slow is smooth and smooth is fast, as Kaylor would say on our team. It's some things you can get done really fast, but they just come back to bite you. And so uh, just taking time to think deeply on problems, get them all the way solved and sort of grow more predictably than bursty how we did in the beginning. Because we were able to close a lot of deals, but we got a little over our skis at times and support. Then we had to go hire a bunch of people. But being just more smooth and predictable on how you're growing, you can still get to the same number. That for me is the biggest lesson learned from the, the past year. Now, final question for you before we wrap. Let's zoom out into the future. So let's say three to five years from today, what's the big picture vision that you're building? I think what we want to be is part of the new digital transformation toolkit for large enterprises, where if you think about doing digital transformation, cloud's there, AI's there, all this great tooling's there. But a lot of times it's the regulatory requirements and the paperwork burden and all this procedural hurdle that's built over time. That's what slows people down, makes them miss their schedule, makes them fall behind against another competitor. Tools like RegScale and the continuous compliance monitoring and automation space are going to be a big part of the toolkit for the future. And so if you go out three to five years, we want to be a market leader in that space and a thought leader in that space. And the, the thing that motivates me more than anything is just being part of the solution. I'm an engineer. I'm not that motivated by money, although certainly we want to get a return for our investors. But the, the thing for me is I want to be part of solving a big problem. And for me, this is the nastiest one left when it comes to large companies who uh, are trying to accelerate into the future, but are always being held back. So if you ask me like what being successful in five years looks like, it'd be that we have hundreds of customers who say, hey, they really helped us get where we needed our business to go. And we love Rick's scale. You know, that, that's something that would make me happy. Amazing. I love the vision. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We will have to wrap here, but before we do, if there's any founders that are just listening in and want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? I found just the community has been great for us. Um, I'm fortunate to live in East Tennessee and everybody we've talked to in the business community and the political community, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, fellow founders, everybody who's built a business knows how hard it is and seems to be more than willing to to mentor, to coach, to help. What I found surprising is like, I thought if you ask these people, like they're important and too busy and like, why would they help you? It's really been the inverse. So I say, don't be scared to find good mentors. The best way to get smart on something is to, to find somebody smarter than you and ask them. And we've been really successful at surrounding ourselves with mentors who've helped us a time. Amazing. Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Brett. No problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 